I'm your host, Natasha T. Miller, and I'd like to welcome you to The Science of Grief, a podcast about the stories, science, and solutions around grief and mental health. First, a quick note. While this podcast is meant to make space for sharing stories and solutions, it is not a substitute for professional help. If you have a mental health concern and need someone to talk to, please contact a mental health professional or your doctor. If you are in a suicidal crisis or emotional distress, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number, one 800 273-8255. The Science of Grief started from my own personal journey after losing my brother Marcus in 2013. It was really hard for me to process the grief that I was experiencing after losing someone so close. But I learned how beneficial it was to share my story with other people and listen to their stories. I hope that's what this podcast will do for you. We're going to make space for young adults to share their stories, but also lead the conversation. Today, we're talking about the unexpected loss of elder family members. And a little later, I'll speak with Abigail Waller, a clinical social worker specializing in grief. But first, we're going to hear from Aaron Birch and share the story of losing his mother to COVID-19. One of the young adults I work with at Science Gallery Detroit Kaylin Higgins spoke with Aaron about his mother and how he struggled with insomnia, depression, and anxiety as a result. Kaylin, if you don't mind, could you introduce yourself and tell us about your role as a mediator? Hi, everyone. My name is Kaylin Higgins, and this is my second year here at the Science Gallery Detroit. Um, and this is also my first year here um, of the Science of Grief podcast. Okay, so let's talk about Aaron a little bit in this interview. Aaron Birch is an amazing man. He's a father. He's also someone who was dealing with the grief and the loss of his mother, which is a story that you'll hear from Aaron himself. Yeah, you talked a little bit about uh, some sort of connection that you may have to it. So can you talk about any personal connection that you may have to things that Aaron talked about? Mm-hmm. Similar to Aaron's experience, um, I too lost a family member um, from this pandemic. I lost my grandfather. Um, he was a fi- father figure to me and my brother. Um, we grew up with him. We lived with him throughout most of our childhood. And it was very, at first, it was very hard to listen to Aaron's story because it was so parallel to mine. Um, when he talks about how his mother was fighting in a hospital for weeks, months, um, how the doctors told him that, oh, she's getting better. The next thing you know, she's she's not getting better. Or just the fact that they're saying the fact that she's not getting worse is getting better. I can definitely relate to it because that was some things that the doctor told me and my family Can you explain how the icebreaker portion of the interviews work? Yeah. So the icebreaker um, portion of the interviews is essentially, obviously, to break the ice. Um, It helps us get to know the interviewees better, and it puts us in a place of making them feel a little bit comfortable. We'll either have our interviewees um, bring a significant object or two truths in one lie. 
And this essentially is just to get them comfortable with talking to us um, and us talking to them as well. And it also give them the chance to fill us out a little bit better um, and vice versa. So for our pre-interview, for our quick icebreaker, Aaron, um, do you have an object with you that has any sentimental value or means something um, special to you? And if so, can you tell us about it? I do. When we were getting ready to, uh, you know, you know for, for my mom's memorial service, we, we were going through photos, you know, basically, basically anything and everything that, you know, that, you know, that we had, you know, for, and, you know, you know, to remember her by. And we had found a box and I opened it up and I found this. I, I had not seen this. You know, this was the, this was something that, you know, just, you know, kind of got tucked away after a while. And this is my baby book, a lock of my hair and, you know, some, some random, you know, some random stuff go, you know, going on. She had cut out a, uh, a, a, um, you know, a, a newspaper clipping and announcing my birth. But the part of it that, you know, that really struck me, it was the, uh, she had written down her thoughts you know, when she had found out that she was pregnant with me and leading up to my birth, I won't, I won't go through the, uh, through the whole lot of it because she, <laughs> my mom was very, very eloquent and very, very verbose, but you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll start it. I'll start it when, you know, she's getting ready to, to give birth. <clears throat> By three thirty, I was still dilated at two. Dr. Ulehart came in at six and broke my water. Your father and I talked it over with doctor and decided we should do C-section. At 11, they came in to get us and started to prep me. I wanted to see you being born, so I had a spinal. At 12.07, you were born, and I was so happy and proud when they brought you over to me. I almost cried. My son was born, and he was okay. He was beautiful. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, you have nothing to apologize for. My youngest, my youngest daughter was born February 28th, 2018. And she was just so, so ecstatic about, uh, uh, about being a, the opportunity to be, you know, to be a grandmother all over again. You know, she was, uh, you know, I still have a, still have a photo of her, you know, holding, holding my daughter Aurora and just, talking to her about, you know, about how much she loved her and how much, and, and just how she was going to be with, you know, you know, be with her for, you know, forever and ever. And we'd found out at the beginning of, uh, of 2020 that my wife and I were expecting once again. And, um, you know, <laughs> she was, uh, <laughs> It was, it was, it was kind of, it was kind of funny because she, uh, you know, what, you know, I was, I remember I was holding, I was holding a Laura and she would, you know, I was feeding her and she was, she was probably three, four months old at the time. And she was, uh, and, you know, she, she was eating and my mom just walked up to me and kind of gave me this, you know, this kind of, you know, offhanded stare and said, your next one's going to be a boy. And I said, next one, what, what, what are you talking about? I have... I have fresh baby right here. Here's here's baby. Do you do you see the baby? She's like, <laughs> I, I I did I stutter? I said your next one was going to be a boy. 
we used to go over there every Sunday for you know, for dinner. And, you know, <clears throat> and my mom would would sit and and, and hold you know my you know, my kids and and just dance and have a good time and you know and she you know you know I remember <clears throat> I picked up Animal Crossing last you know, last year at the beginning of quarantine and and you know we were talking about how we were going to do gen- you know the gender reveals for it and you know this you know this was after you know the you know the, <clears throat> you know, the you know there was a gender reveal party that had a uh, you know that that involved explosions and you know and had caused a wildfire she's you know, she made me promise that I would never do anything like that I was like ah, I think we're gonna do the gender reveal via Animal Crossing it seems seems like a seems like a fun concept and she's like well. You know, just uh, just don't do anything stupid like you know, like that. She had a uh, you know, she had gone in the hospital on on April fifteenth, and you know she was short of breath, delirious. She held her phone. She didn't know what her phone where her phone was. She didn't know where she was. You know, it was you know it was just you know you know. I remember I remember being on my way home from work. And my dad called me and said, "I don't want to freak you out, but." You know your mom. You're you know taking your mom into the hospital to to get looked at. I'm like okay, I'm you know telling me not to be freaked out. It only freaks me out more. But okay, all right, that's fine. And um, she was originally being treated for bilateral pneumonia, and um, eventually she came back positive for COVID nineteen, and you know thus began the fight for her life. The thing that they you know that you know that a lot of people don't understand about COVID is that it's not it's not a steady decline, it's it's a roller coaster because there there are good days there are days where you know where where things seem to be getting better and you know and the patient is improving and and you know it looks like things are getting are gonna you know, be all right and then a day later and then a day later everything falls apart and she's worse off than what she was before. So, you know, it, it got to the point where the doctor, you know, the doctors and nurses essentially told us to start managing our expectations and that not getting worse was actually an improvement. And she fought for 51 days in the hospital with, you know, with COVID-19. And the last, you know, conversation that, you know, I, I had with her, in person was it was April sixth of last year, and um, I had taken I had taken you know, my kids over to uh, over to my parents' house because it was my dad's birthday, and I wanted them to uh, I wanted them to write "Happy Birthday, Papa Al" on chalk in the uh, in the uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me on the on the driveway of, of their house, and. Um, when my mom came out and and you know saw me, saw my wife Seda, and both the kids, and you know I remember just in, you know just sitting in the car, you know watching her look at you know look at my youngest daughter through you know through the window, and you know the tears well up in her eyes because I know she just wanted to hold them and tell them that everything was going to be all right, and that and that their her their nana loved them very much, and they and they couldn't and she couldn't wait to. And to have Sunday dinner with them again. The nurse told us 
to mentally prepare ourselves for the time that we see a loved one on, on a ventilator. But I close my eyes and all I see is my mom hooked up to a bunch of machines with a bunch of tubes coming out of her. And that's, and that's all I see. And it wasn't, it wasn't until a week after that, that we had found out what, you know, you know, and what the and what gender the child was that my mom or that my wife was carrying, and I had to tell my mom via Zoom while she was on the ventilator that she was right, that she was going to have her first grandson, and she she for what it's worth, the nurse told me that when I told her that she smiled and squeezed her hand. Which was about as much of a as much of a response as she could muster. Grieving after you know after that, I mean, you know, it was my worst fear that she was that she was going to be alone and afraid when she had passed away, and that that came to fruition. She wasn't. She didn't see me. She didn't see my dad who. She was married to since 1984, and they had been in a relationship since 1977. She didn't see my kids. She didn't see her dogs. She didn't see my sister. She was alone and afraid, surrounded by strangers who, to their credit, were doing everything they could to keep her alive. But she was gone. I would, you know, make the mistake of of getting on social media or watching the news and hearing and and seeing, you know, the just just awful, awful things that people had to say, especially especially people in the in positions of power. And I would have panic attacks at work. And it was it was one of the worst things that, that I had ever experienced. Every day presents it presents itself with its own challenges, but you know I have to find I have to find a way to to push through because I because I know I know what my mom would tell me if uh, if she found out that I if she found out that I was fussing and fretting over her she'd say don't don't worry about me stop worrying about me you worry too much. You know, worry about yourself, you know, your kids, your family. Don't worry about me. Oh my gosh, your story has like seriously touched me. It reminded me so much of my um, grandfather. He uh, he caught the COVID nineteen and he went through a similar situation which your mother has. So that that really hit home for me, and um, like, sorry for being like a crying hot mess, but (laughs) oh, I'm I'm a crying hot mess myself. So there's, I mean, you're you're in very good company right now.
Aaron's story is heartbreaking, and everyone's experience in grief is different. But grieving the loss of his mother, it made me think about my own mother. Later on, I'll share a poem I wrote about my mother. But first, Aaron touched on some things I want to talk about. Unexpected loss, depression, anxiety. To do that, I called Abigail Waller, a CAPS counselor at Michigan State University. She's a mental health professional who specializes in grief. She's also experienced a personal loss of her own. Abigail, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your relationship to grief, and what it is that you do with the university? Absolutely. Um, I am a mental health clinician. I'm a clinical social worker, um, and I work at a counseling center at Michigan State, um, and I run the grief grief groups for students. Um, I'm also a bereaved parent. In 2013, my son died of cancer, of brain cancer, at the age of five. Thank you. So we just heard Aaron's story. And I would like to get just um, your initial reactions to the story that you just heard. Absolutely. Well, my very first reaction is simply just to thank Aaron for his openness and vulnerability in sharing his some of his experiences with us. You know, there are so many taboos and myths around grief, and it can be incredibly powerful for grieving in individuals to hear other people just talk openly about it. So that's that's my very first reaction. And, and just, you know, grief by nature is a very lonely and isolating experience. And, um, you know, losing a loved one during a pandemic pre presents unique challenges and exacerbates those feelings of loneliness and, and help helplessness when someone's dying. When you talk about the isolation and the loneliness, yeah. as... Um, you would think Aaron's was a singular story, but we know with the pandemic, it wasn't. But still, I would, you know, I heard so much pain in Aaron's voice when he talks about no one that his mother really loved being able to be there for her in her final moments. Yes. And, you know, the question that I would ask you is, you know, is there is there a way, are there any 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 tips that you could give the audience for how you can cope with not being there for somebody in those final moments. How do you, how do you just, how do you live with that? Absolutely. Well, I think we all have our notions and our expectations of what a good death could look like. Um, and I think sometimes it's letting go of the reality of life. Um, you know, and with the pandemic, it's, Using a bit more creativity of keeping connections with other people, keeping people close. This is much more challenging during a during a pandemic. You know, our our support systems are less robust, more fragile. Um, you know, that I was thinking about the word bereavement, and I don't know if you've ever come across what bereavement actually means. It's um, so the Latin root word of bereavement means to be robbed. And I guess that's when he, when Aaron was talking, really thinking about how that that feeling that he's been robbed, robbed of his mum, robbed of his children having a grandmother, robbed of his identity, his security, predictability. Um, and I think you know, back to your question of what what helps, it's patience, it's self compassion, it's staying connected with people, um, and it's really it's really challenging. 
So when you talk about this idea of 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 being robbed or the actual definition of bereavement, mm-hmm. you know, in another story, and I think it's similar to Aaron's story, it's about you losing those future moments to quote, you know, another woman who who appear in our podcast. It's about you losing those future moments with someone. Aaron talked about, you know, his wife being pregnant with his son. And that's something that his mother told him would happen to him. And I just imagine that you have to look at your son, you know, for as long as your son is in your life and think about the relationship that you had with your mother or the loss of your mother. How do we come into a space where we see this thing that they're missing out on still as a blessing to us and as a as a tribute to them? Uh-huh. Well, I think the first thing that I was thinking of was, um, you know, all of our losses need to be acknowledged. So that that's, I just want to go back to that, to acknowledge that. Um, so we have the loss, the, we have the primary loss, the loss of the individual, the person that we loved who's no longer here. And then we have those secondary losses that we just touched on. Maybe that's um, our identity, feelings of security, predictability in the world. And I, I guess to, to move forward or to get to a different place in grief, it's really acknowledging all of those losses. So I call that, that the primary loss, the loss of the individual, and all of those secondary losses. Um, I heard Aaron say a comment. Um, he said, I lost, I think to quote him something, he said something like, I lost so much when I lost her. And I think often in grief, we hear people say, I feel like I'm losing everything. And that really speaks to, so the loss of the individual and then the snowball of problems or this, or the secondary losses that follow. And I think we need to acknowledge them. And that's why support systems are so important. We need people to see what's happened to our lives. Um, And I think sometimes people worry that if they acknowledge it too much, they might um, go down a spiral and get very, very depressed. But sometimes we need to to name losses. Um, We can't heal what we don't feel. So we need to, we need to, and we need to express things. We need to acknowledge it and we need people to acknowledge it. So often we get into this space where you've been grieving, you know, for so long over something or someone that you lost. And like, as you talk about these secondary losses, we start to feel like we're overwhelming ourselves and other people, or like we don't have the space to say, hey, yes, I did lose my mother, but also my mother isn't at my son's graduation. So it feels weird. It feels empty. My mother is not at my wedding. So, you know, I I feel like my wedding is not as happy as it could have been if if she would have been around, you know, if my father was was there to walk me down, down the aisle. So I, you know, another question is how do we start to see or allow ourselves to just be in the moments that are, that are good for us and that are good to us without constantly thinking about what's missing. Yeah. And again, I get back to acknowledging it, to sit with it. Um, You know, there is no shortcut, unfortunately, processing the pain of grief. And to, I don't don't want to say move through it because that's misleading, but to 
find more love than pain. Maybe I can phrase it that way in grief. I guess the goal in grief is to have more love than pain. Um, and the way we do that is being able to sit, sit and be with that, with the pain of it. You know, and he mentioned as well, he mentioned the challenges of being um, a parent and, and having to work. Like, you know, and it's, it's hard for people to grieve when they have to go, go to work. It's hard to grieve when we don't want to show our children the depth and the darkness of our loss. Um, and sometimes I think the reality of our lives, we do need to put our grief in a box. We need to put it aside, but at times only as long as we, at, when we're by ourselves or when we're with other loved ones, um, we can look at our grief and, and be with it. And sometimes they talk about even befriending it, you know, not to be scared by the intensity of the emotions. Um, mm. I like to talk a little bit about, you know, we, we know the story or, I know the story, at least, of, of, of Charlie from, you know, uh, interviewing you or speaking with you several times. Yes. And I hear, you know, I heard some of the similarities in the story that we just heard where Aaron talked about his mother was in the hospital for 51 days. And somewhere in, in, in his story, he alluded to the fact that I can't get those images out of my head. And I imagine because... You, you witnessed this for 51 days. You saw your mother intubated. You know, you saw your mother with all of these tubes hooked up to her. How do we get, how do we get ourselves out of just seeing someone as they're dying and remember them in the moments that they were alive, that you had no idea that this person was leaving you. You just thought you had every day with them. How do you see that as the finale and cleanse your mind of those, those final moments? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. Um, I think, you know, you're touching on our bodies can go into this hypervigilant state. Um, you know, is today my mother going to die? Or in, in, my, in our story, when my son, so he was diagnosed um, just before his third birthday and for two and a half years, we lived with, he could die. We were told it was terminal, um, but he could die any day. Um, it could be very quick and sudden, or it could be long and long and drawn out. And your body does go into this fight or flight response. And he spoke to, he, you know, one of the symptoms he talked about was panic. That symptom, that, that panic, that his body, that, and I, I think his body was going through that fight or flight response constantly. Um, I think there are exercises, mindfulness exercises to bring us back to be present that can help just with coping skills when our bodies are going through that fight or flight response. Um, Something else that I wanted to, to touch on is, you know, Aaron mentioned insomnia, depression and anxiety. And I'm pretty certain that most of us who have experienced these sort of tragic losses have dealt with that at some period or any loss. And is there, is there any ways or any, any, any cures or tips that you have for people who are, who are dealing with that sort of anxiety and depression? I think the very first thing is just to let people know that it's normal. And this is why grief groups are so, so powerful is because people learn that their experiences and their symptoms are 
um, are normal and that they're not going crazy. I think people feel it's, it's a very scary feeling when you have such intense emotions um, and just knowing that this is normal can bring incredible relief. You know, when we lose someone suddenly or it's a long drawn out illness, it violates our sense of predictability in the world. You know, our safety has been violated. If this can happen, what else can happen? And it takes time for the world to feel safe and predictable again. And so it's really important just that, I think sometimes we can use that word flippantly, self-care, and we think maybe it means a bubble bath or, um, but it's, it's really being kind. So being kind and gentle um, with oneself. And, and that means sitting with intensity of emotions and giving oneself time to do that. What are some other forms of self-care that people need to, to open themselves up to or that they're missing out on that and should be practiced, whether that be counseling, yes. you know, medicine, whatever, whatever it is, I, I'd be curious to know. Yep. So it could be counseling. And, you know, ja, I don't, I don't want to pathologize grief. You know, grief is a normal reaction. But just because it's normal, it doesn't mean we don't need help. And it can, you know, we do live in a society where we're not good with grief. You know, whether when people ask us how we're doing, you know, we expect to say fine. And so, you know, it could be counseling. It could be finding a support group. It could be learning about mindfulness. It could be when we have a negative thought, just allowing it. You know, it could be being really mindful of our, of our thinking, of our patterns and our thought, of our thoughts. Um, I think that nature can be incredibly healing. You know, a lot of us now in the pandemic are stuck in rooms, looking at computers. We're not moving our bodies. We're not getting outside. So just that reminder of getting outside, moving our bodies. You know, and another thing with grief is we're more susceptible to illness. Um, where we catch colds more, our immune systems are down. So it might be as simply as drinking more water, you know, making sure that you sit down and eat a meal. Um, grieving people are not good at self-care. And also I think, you know, with grief, there is no rule book, rule book here. There's no roadmap. And um, some of it is going to be a little bit of trial and error. Do I need to be around people and push myself to have company or do I need to be by myself? It's also, so I just wanted to briefly touch on because people might've heard of stages of grief. We have moved away in the grief literature talking about stages of grief. Um, it's not so helpful because that makes us think it's a, this nice, neat, linear process. Grief is messy. And another way to understand grief is talking about tasks of grief. And that one of the tasks of grief is finding connection, finding meaning. Um, and that's why, you know, we talk about anniversaries, birthdays, diagnosis date, holidays, is what can we do to remember this person? What has significance? Um, and that will help us to adjust to the world and to adjust with the world without that person. And, you know, who am I now? How do I exist in this world without the person in my life? In, in your opinion, 
is there a way to successfully prepare ourselves for these moments? Hmm. I think, you know, I think it's the price. (laughs) Grief is the price we pay for love. Um, And to know that our pain is a reflection of our love and trying to reframe it in that way and maybe reframing it in that way, it can be a little bit less terrifying when we lose someone. Earlier in this episode, you heard Aaron talk about how kind his mother was. You also heard Abigail speak about how kindness can go a really long way when it comes to the healing process. I think that my mother is one of the kindest people that I've ever met, and I think Aaron and I share those same sentiments. So I feel like it's only right that I end this episode with a poem that I wrote dedicated to my mother, and it's called The Answer is Kindness. The question is my father. The answer is my mother. Buried her only son alone, pulled holidays out of 80-hour work weeks, feet blistering, hands ashy, teeth white, always smiling. The question is my brother. The answer is my mother. Received the diagnosis early, Never seen him as burden, paid for medicine, out of pocket, showed up to every hearing, put money she didn't have on books, spoke highly of, never gave up on him. The question is me. The answer is my mother. A lot of addiction, a lot more of surviving, a brick of confidence, a tree trunk of humility, a tiny home that survived the hurricane, the sharpest knife in any kitchen. The question is kindness. The answer is my mother more than her demons, heart of vending machine that costs you nothing. The most versatile cut of the cow, the rib, the rib, the rib. The question is kindness. The answer is always my mother. If you found this episode helpful and you want to hear more, subscribe. And if you know someone who might find this episode beneficial, please share it with them. A reminder, this podcast is not a substitute for professional help. If you have a mental health concern and need someone to talk to, please contact a mental health professional or your doctor. Help is available. If you are in a suicidal crisis or an emotional distress, please call the National Suicide Prevention Line. That number is 1-800-273-8255. This episode was produced by me, Natasha T. Miller, Kaylin Higgins, Shanmeen Sultana, David Lyons, and our editor, David Weinberg. Sound design and theme music by Sam Bobian. With additional support from Patrick Vaughn, Holly Ann Stewart, Aaron Appleby, Maida Stangy, and Antoine Scott. The Science of Grief podcast is a collaboration between Science Gallery Detroit and WDET. 
Detroit's NPR station and is supported by the Children's Foundation of Michigan, MSU, FCU, and Science Sandbox. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. We hope you listen to our next episode. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and take care of your mental health. Thank you.